What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Hey guys, all you wiretappers out there, this is uh, one of the series of short episodes about the Chicago outfit in 1989. I'm recording this with my friend Cam Robinson, Camulus Robinson, and Paul Whitcomb, my other friend. Both of these guys are experts on the Chicago outfit. Now, looking back at 1989, the Cubbies won first place in the National League East but the Giants beat them in the National League playoffs, if you remember that. The Royals, since I'm from Kansas City, we finished second in the American League West, kind of on our way back downhill from our great win in the World Series in 1985. Richard J. Daly had been the mayor for a long time in Chicago, and Richard M. Daly, little Richie, became the mayor in 1989. Now you're going to notice that the sound is just a little off. I had to take the sound from a Zoom call because my recorder developed a problem during the taping, and I didn't notice it until we were about, God, I bet about an hour or so into it, and none of us wanted to go back over this again. It's just, it's like catching lightning in a bottle doing a show. I felt like we'd done something really good, and it just, we, it just can't, sometimes you just can't do it again. So, but I think it's a cool show, a cool series of episodes about, Stool pigeons in 1989. Now, 1989, the Chicago outfit had a bad year, as you'll see. Everybody came in and started talking. So settle back and listen to this particular episode. I don't remember which is which. Now, don't forget to hit me up on my Venmo, bite me a shot and a beer, or help me buy a new recorder, which I'm going to do. Or hit me up on my website on the donate page using PayPal, or you can use your credit card. Now, settle back and listen to this particular episode of the year of the stool pigeon let's take a look at betty toko which uh this is pretty interesting there was a um, i'm not sure albert toko was her husband remind me what his position was in the outfit at that time so al toko was there's sort of a, a division on who was the leadership of or who was the central leader of of chicago heights there's there's dominic toots palermo and uh, Al Toko, who was really a powerhouse in Chicago Heights, and and Toots Palermo was definitely highly connected, it, and across the pond too, also in in Italy. But uh, Toko was involved in the in the chop shop wars, really really heavily involved, and he had a lot of connections in Chicago too. He was involved with Lombardo in a lot of these chop shops throughout Chicago. He had a lot of partnerships, and so this was a thirty million dollar a year uh, racket. Stolen cars, chop shops, international car rings, uh, car rings throughout, stolen car rings throughout the country. Toko was responsible for burying the Spalatro brothers. It was very sectioned off. Each crew had a part in their murder. And then Chicago Heights was responsible for the burial. And 
they were down in Enos, Indiana. They got kind of turned around a little bit. They were down a farm road. They were burying them in uh, freshly tilled fields. And the road where they're on, there's a little side road uh, that you would drive down. There's very little down there. I've, I've seen it. But a car happened to come down in the middle of the night and they were in a, there's a, they were a couple feet off of a wooded area and they see this car coming down and they sort of all panicked. And before they had a chance to cover the area or really do anything, it just looked like a freshly dug, it, it really just looked like a freshly dug mound. And so they all fled and three of Toko's guys went one way and he went the other. They had the car and both radios. He's wandering around barefoot and he calls his wife. Finally, she shows up and he's screaming and yelling and uh, he flee. He runs to Florida and he's waiting for permission to come back from, from Joe Ferriola. He's worried he's going to get killed because they find the Spalachos immediately because the farmer sees his field all messed up, freshly tilled, freshly tilled grand, ground. And it, and it looks really suspicious. Like somebody had been poaching deer and, and burying the carcass. Uh, but Toko was a tyrant to his wife. He was, he was horrible to her. He was, he was, when you think of what a mob guy was, that was Toko, you know, tipping the guy who mows his lawn, the kid who mows his lawn hundred bucks and wandered around town. Everybody knows him, but he'd come home. And unlike a lot of these guys, he was, he was a real, you know, a real, real bastard to his wife, you know, and for years she put up with this sort of abuse. And finally, after this, this happened and it was in the news and all, he finally pushed her too far and she began informing on him and, and he was arrested later on. He was in his jail cell talking about all the murders he had committed and, and this and that about his wife and uh, his, his uh, uh, cellmate repeated everything that he said to try and lessen his sentence. So really Toko got buried by his big mouth and his terrible behavior uh, he initially fled to Greece before he was arrested and they extradited him back from Greece. So this is, I mean, Togo is like deep in mob behavior. I mean, fleeing the country and all, I mean, it doesn't get much more mafia than, than Al Togo. I, I hesitate to use that word with, with Chicago, but that was Al Togo was running deep. And that Betty Togo's testimony eventually led to, to the trial of Al Togo. And that was really a blow to the Chicago Heights crew that nowadays, I mean, they, they continued on and had, had a few rackets, but after that event, the eventual trial that stemmed from that, there really wasn't, there's not much activity now. I'm, I'm in that area and there's just, there's really nothing here. Interesting. Now, uh, so Tony and Michael Spilatro had been lured to somebody's house on the promise that Michael was going to be made is my understanding. I believe that's what Frank Collada had reported. And, and some other people, not not part of the Chicago Heights crew, killed them. Yeah. And how did that go down? And then how did they they pass off the bodies? You guys, is there anything out there about that? And the, wasn't that in the family secrets trial? Maybe it was. And of course, it's been popularly portrayed in the movie Casino. Yeah. And it's it's surprisingly accurate, uh, except for the fact that where they were beaten. But what happened was uh, little Jimmy Marcello called them. And said Sam, meaning Sam Carlisi, the boss, wanted to see them. And they knew that that was ominous because of the what was going on and beyond the scope of this show. But they, they took off the jewelry. They left. They told their wives, if we're not back by 930, it's not good. Uh, they really did not suspect that it was 
to make Michael. Uh, that's what Collada said. You're absolutely right about that, Gary, but I don't think that's correct at all. They knew that it was bad. And uh, they he went, took a pistol, which was against the rules. They a hidden pistol. Tony hid a pistol on his brother, which you do not do when you go to see the boss. And they were picked up by, by Marcelo and taken to a house. I, uh, was it Bensonville? Yeah, up in Bensonville. Yeah, in, in the basement, they walked down the stairs, and all of a sudden they looked into the eyes of Carlisi and uh, DeFranzo and everybody. The whole All the capos were there to spread the, the uh, liability around, and they were beaten to death with, with fists and, and feet uh, in, in that basement and then transported to that burial ground, which coincidentally was just maybe a couple hundred yards away from Joey Aupa's farm. Interesting. Right. So I guess that they must have had uh, Toko standing by because I don't believe he was in that basement. I think that he must have had him standing mm-hmm. by to go grab the bodies and take them out. Really, really interesting. He should have had the, the hole dug before he got there. You know, that's what they always say. First you dig the hole, then you go do the murder. And, right. <laughs> and I don't think he had it dug before he got there. Yeah, I don't, I really, that's a good, that's a good point, Gary. I really don't know, and nobody's ever come forward to say what the status of the hole was beforehand. Uh, you know, it was a deep, it was a deep, it was, it was a pretty deep hole, uh, but they may have had it dug ahead of time, but, but, because uh, they knew the location, and it's a pretty obscure location, so they had clearly been there before, and, and you know, everybody knew that that was, I, I hope was, I got it right, farm. And uh, so they may have had a dug and, and they just did a shoddy job covering it up. I don't I also haven't heard sp- the specific details about how they handed it off to Toko. I don't recall seeing that in, in Calabrese's testimony. Yeah, it was Nick Calabrese that, that testified about that. Right. And it brought it to light and named the killer. So he may not have gone that far, probably having uh, Toko and having his wife testify that he did do this and she picked him up out there was just mm-hmm. a piece of the entire prosecution on the collaterals, which there really never was a trial or anything on that, I don't believe. Another odd thing is he I believe he ranted and raved the entire car ride back and from where he was you would you would run up with but is now turns in Indianapolis. So it's it's a good car ride from where they were to Chicago Heights. I, I believe he ranted and raved about the guys and his crew and, and the burial and, and everything, the entire car ride, which was not something most guys would do in front of their wives, but I believe really? he did. Especially when you treated like that. Right. Yeah. And complained about how long it took her to get there and everything. So she was uh, she was able to verify what Cal, a lot of what Calabrese was saying from mm-hmm. kind of from the, the, the final end of it. Interesting. You know, there's a friend of mine was in the penitentiary and he said, there's a guy in there called himself a verifier. He said, what do you mean? He said, I'm a professional verifier. And what he was, he was an informant. That's <laughs> what he was, but he called himself a verifier. <laughs> Bureau would come to him and say, well, I heard this, this, and this. Is that true or not? And he'd say, well, that's true or that's not true. <laughs> I guess that's a that's a more preferable term. Yeah, she was a verifier. Well, thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, look for the next episode in the Year of the Snitch coming soon. Don't forget to hit me up on your Venmo app, at Gangland Wire, or go to my donate page. Need all the help we can get. 
And as you know, I always have a little blurb supporting the Veterans Administration and their PTSD work because it's a, it's a huge problem. There's a lot of cops with PTSD. I've probably got some myself. I uh, probably could use this myself, a little PTSD help. Uh, you know, there's one more thing about that. Here in Kansas City, I was at a company, uh, actually, they worked on my computer down here at 304 Armor Road in North Kansas City, and this is for you Kansas City people. There's a virtual reality company called OmniLife, and they ha- they fix computers. They have a virtual reality games, which are really scary. They put me in one and asked me to walk up plank and walk out and look straight down from a, like a 50-story building. I couldn't do it. It's, it's so real, it's unbelievable. But the last thing that I want to tell you is they have PTSD therapy for military vets. They use virtual reality. It would like put a vet in a convoy and then have a IED blow up right in front of them and have them walk them back through their experiences that they had in, in uh, the Middle East or probably go all the way back to Vietnam now. Some of us are still around. And they have a doctor on staff whenever you do this. I don't know if they have a connection with the VA or not, but the guy was telling me about it. It sounded pretty interesting. So uh, I just wanted to give them a little plug for you Kansas City listeners. And uh, you may not have PTSD, but if you ever wanted to try something that was fun and, and exciting without taking any real physical risk, go up there to 304 Armor Road and check out the virtual reality games. Thanks, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.